I think that that's what it, I, these things collecting has in common with business. It's, it's just you're, you're testing yourself. Does, is the market going to, going to agree with me or is it going to disagree with me? What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. If you have the time, please subscribe and leave a review. It truly helps. Thanks a bunch for listening, and please enjoy today's guest on Collector's Gene Radio. Today's guest is serial entrepreneur and collector, Jonathan Spizzato. After starting companies like GeekWire, PicMonkey, Joy Sauce, and selling a few others as well, Jonathan's at a stage in his career where collecting has truly never been more important. Of course, this ties into his multifaceted collections like old fighter pilot jackets, Savile Row suits, cars, watches, back to apparel from brands like Ralph Lauren and even rare hand-painted leather punk rock jackets. But when it comes to his companies like Joy Sauce, Jonathan is curating and collecting some of the very best content in the AAPI space, and he approaches it the same way he does when it comes to his personal collections. The name of the game here is a common theme on the show, which is buy what you love. And the collector's gene couldn't be more present than in this very episode, and Jonathan has the passion and knowledge to back it. All right, let's dive in. This is Jonathan Spizzato for Collector's Gene Radio. Jonathan, so great to welcome you on Collector's Gene Radio. Hey, thank you so much, Cameron. It's, it's really my honor to be here to speak with you today. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, your your story is quite remarkable uh, from coming to the U.S. at an early age from London to being the first person to sell two profitable companies to Google. Uh, you, you founded companies like GeekWire and PicMonkey and JoySauce, along with many more. You're an author and, for all intents and purposes, a collector. Can you give the listeners a little more insight into your background and your career? Yeah, uh, I appreciate that, Cameron. Um, it is it is really a very unconventional story. So um, I am, despite my Italian American last name, and we'll get to how I got that name. I'm actually a hundred percent Asian. I'm half Chinese, half Korean, and I actually discovered later in life, like when I was, um, you know, maybe like eleven or twelve, that my birth father was Korean American, and I had never met him until a few years ago. So I'm 56 and I met him shortly after I turned 50. So for pretty much most of my adult life, I didn't know who my father was. And I would say that what's interesting about that is that it kind of forces you to prove to the world that you're, you're just fine. And you sort of have this, it's not a chip or anything, but you have an attitude or a very strong drive to want to not have to rely on a lot of other people and just to be able to make it on your own. And you you almost want to show the world like, hey, you you don't have to stop asking me if I'm okay, or you don't have to feel sorry for me. Uh, I'm doing good. And so I think that that has instilled in me at an early age, uh, right or wrong, a certain kind of ambition. And I think that we're all, a lot of us, if we're, you know, like yourself, you're, you're a very successful guy and you're doing amazing things and you have an amazing collection. A lot of us are driven by a form of ambition that's very, very similar. In my case, it is driven by my background. And so right or wrong, it, it causes me to not ever stop working. I you know, have been asked many times, you know, why, why aren't you retired? You know, and, and the truth is I, I, I probably could have retired 
you know, a couple of decades ago, uh, if not more, a couple acquisitions ago, <laughs> a couple acquisitions ago, and, and uh, things like that. But 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 I feel that there's more to do, and perhaps more selfishly, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm really good at and maybe what I'm not good at and maybe to continue to grow and learn. And I think that that's what's important in life. So that, that's kind of my high level summary. And I don't know, and Cameron, if you have specific questions about my background, I'm happy to dig into that. So. No, I think that's perfect. There's, there's so much about you online. And I think anyone who wants to dig deep into your background and your history they will definitely do so. And I just wanted to make sure that we talked about all the the amazing companies that you've started and sold and that you still have and that you're working on because I think it's it's very impressive and uh, worth everybody checking out. And I think there's a lot of what you're doing now that really ties into collecting, which we'll talk about later, especially with Joy Sauce. Yeah. That's exactly why I love talking with really smart people like you, Cameron, is that really for the first time, I am realizing like right now, that there is a connection or there is a similarity between all of these companies that I've started, how I decide which company to start, how I think about where is the gap. Like I have these three over here and then what, what should be a fourth company to add to the portfolio? Where's the gap? And that's the same mentality uh, that, that most of us apply to collecting. And for the first time, I'm realizing it just the value of talking with you is that you have these new connections or new insights that you develop about about this stuff. So thank you. No, no. And thank you because it's not often I get to to talk with somebody who understands that aspect of collecting because most people hear collecting and they think dollar signs and expensive things. And, and obviously that's the fun stuff that comes with it, but there's so much more to to living a curated lifestyle, if you will, especially when you own businesses that can benefit from that. And I think that's exactly kind of what you have going on with Joy Sauce right now and definitely what you've done with your other businesses in the past. So mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. I, I, I kind of look at something like joysauce.com, which is a, an all-new, 100% Asian-American-centered media platform. We've got reality TV shows. We've got written articles and incisive editorial. We've got podcasts and we've got um, uh, scripted TV. We've got a Joy Sauce late night show, which I'm the host of because I, I was admittedly cheap and I, I didn't want to pay for somebody else. I just jumped in there. Well, you're great at it. So it, it, it makes sense. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And, and so, so all of these things are in a way the platform itself is a collection of, you know, really interesting sort of famous AAPI celebrities and TV stars and writers, even the music under the music section. It's a totally curated collection of all of these up and coming young AAPI musicians, you know, all kind of in one place. And so, so again, there's that, that kind of collector's mentality that, that, that uh, is consistent with, with the businesses. So that I think I find that really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as mentioned, you're, you're a collector of a lot of things and I want to make sure that we talk about each one. And I think a great place to start is with suits and apparel, because I feel like a lot of your collecting stems from this category, even if it's not where your collecting journey necessarily started. You have a fantastic collection of Savile Row suits. And I'm curious to know if you were always into this specific style of tailoring growing up. I have to admit, it doesn't flatter me to say this uh, because it makes me boring, but the answer is yes. <laughs> so so what, what, what started to bug was I was in high school and I went into a vintage shop 
and maybe it wasn't even a vintage shop as much as it was like a Salvation Army or something, you know, one of those uh, where there were old clothes. And for like about $8 or $10, I bought a suit that I, I dated to the 40s. It happened to fit me perfectly. And that was like a suit that I wore when I was in high school. And it was so well constructed. It was the most handsomely and high quality uh, uh, constructed clothing item I owned. And I think I got it for like, like I said, like 10 to 12 bucks. And that gave me this bug to dress in a way that was a little bit more old school. Now, I wasn't trying to be like, you know, I don't go driving around in, a, in an old Ford Thunderbird or it's not a cosplay kind of thing for me. It's, it's that I just enjoy um, how well made these things are. And so that, that's kind of how it started for me. And I decided uh, that there was a certain way that I wanted to look and feel uh, when I was in my clothes. And that's where it began. Salvador Row is known for bespoke suits. And even until this day, it's kind of graduation day for anyone who collects and buys suits and cares about this stuff. What do you think it is about Savile Row, other than them being so friendly, that makes it one of the very few meccas when it comes to suit collecting? So I think that any person who considers themselves well-dressed, any gentleman that considers himself well-dressed, kind of has to make a decision at some point whether you're really about Italian tailoring, you know, bigger shoulders, more waist suppression, beautiful fabrics, um, more colorful fabrics, a little bit more leeway in terms of lapels and pockets, maybe more trendy. Sometimes they're shorter, sometimes they're longer, the jackets. Or you are more about American tailoring, you know, that classic, you know, Chip Davidson. Chip was uh, uh, the tailor to um, JFK, amongst others, uh, where it's more that sack suit fit that is, is, is kind of, that, that, that's consistent with like Brooks Brothers and Jay Press. Or if you're more into British tailoring. And for me, British tailoring sort of is the most flattering for my body type, where there is just enough waist suppression. The shoulders are a little bit more natural. They're not quite as exaggerated as Italian, but it's a more flattering masculine look, in my opinion, than the American silhouette. So I think at a high level, most guys have to sort of decide who they are. And in my early days, I kind of decided that, you know, I'm, I'm probably more favorable to British tailoring. And of course, I own clothing from those other styles too. Then once you go down that path, boy, you go to Savile Row and Honestly, for anyone who has any doubt in their mind that it's somehow uh, a potentially like a snobbish thing or people are going to turn their noses up at you uh, or you have to be a certain kind of person to, to, to be a customer, let me disabuse. I, I have been, I have never been treated. Uh, here I am just off the street, some unknown guy. I walk in and they, and they are really, really just accommodating. They love seeing new customers, younger customers. I get the feeling sometimes these cutters and, and tailors uh, in the back room, uh, they would love to go a little crazy and are looking for that person who can kind of um, uh, work with them on something interesting. Uh, and, 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 and there are just so many different house styles, uh, depending on whether you go to you know, Henry Poole or, or Huntsman or, um, you know, or Nutters or, or Davis and Sons or back in the day, Fallon and Harvey and, and Kilgore, which was always one of my favorites. But sadly, I, I understand it closed a few years ago. But each, each 
one, each house has a slightly different house style. And so over time, I think it's really fun to, to, to figure out which one, you know, suits you best. And, and they're all just lovely. Um, uh, everyone I've met has just been amazing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And even if, you know, for folks that can't necessarily afford to get a custom suit made on Savile Row, it's worth going and seeing if you're ever in the area. And it's just something special. It's just something that really doesn't exist anywhere else. And and you can't help but, you know, feel like you're taken back to a different time when you walk down Savile Row. It's, it's, it's really impressive. Yeah, it, it sure is. One thing that I will say is that, you know, gosh, it doesn't take that many lower quality off the rack suits to add up to the cost of one amazing bespoke suit. Yeah. And that's something that people also need to realize is that, you know, you go and buy three, four suits off the rack from somewhere because you just got a new job and, you know, you didn't have any clothes before you needed new suits, but it's much easier almost to get one incredibly made suit, maybe two, and switch out your shirts, your ties, your shoes. And it's, it's kind of the same way I view watches in a lot of aspects is that you could have one watch and a hundred watch straps and it's a different watch every day. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I, I love that you brought that up because it's 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 so true. The, the the I would say my favorite Savile Row suits are indestructible, and there would be no problems if if I only owned two of them. That that's all I wore. That 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 you could wear you know all year round, day in day out. Nothing's gonna come apart on you. It's not gonna wear down the thread, you know, unless you're picking some really um, like a really soft or more delicate cashmere. Uh, it 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 just these things are indestructible because they are so well made, precisely because they're handmade and 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 to a very high standard and very high quality. And you can do so much. Your watch analogy is right on, which is whether it's ties, shirts, pocket squares, choice of cufflinks, choice of shoes. Whether you're layering underneath with a with a sweater or not, uh, there's so much you can do with just even two or three suits in your wardrobe if that's all you had to mix it up and and make that um, make that always interesting. So I love that concept. I want to move on to another, I guess, apparel collection of yours, and that's vintage Ralph Lauren polo bear sweaters. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I know you adore these, and you have a bunch of them. I, I love them too. It's one of those things that it can't help but put a smile on your face when you see them, whether you own one or not. And other than collecting them and enjoying them and wearing them, they actually served a much larger purpose of than just being sweaters, uh, especially in the 80s. And I know that you know a lot about that history, and I would love for you to tell the listeners kind of about that. Yeah, I'd be delighted to. So, so number one, it does, you're absolutely right. It does start with, I mean, why do we collect anything? It's because they delight you. And if something delights you, and it really, or Marie, what's Marie Kondo would say, um, it, does it spark joy? And, and absolutely, a really, really intricate, detailed, hand-stitched teddy bear that's anthropomorphized and, and, and wearing an old 1940s pilot outfit or playing the part of a bank chairman in a pinstripe suit or is a skier uh, with goggles and, and, and a ski jacket, that image on your sweater is under a, a really well-made sport coat or a suit jacket. It, it's absolutely d- delightful. And I would be the first to admit that it's not for everyone. I've had a lot of guys tell me in this sort of 
group that I belong to online that, you know what, I, I can't pull this off. There's no way I can pull. I mean, you, may, you can you can barely pull it off, Jonathan. Um, but but so I think things should delight you, and and if you can own it in a certain way and make it yours, that that's even better. But yeah, the history that you're referring to is that there was a time when it, something began very earnestly, which was uh, Ralph Lauren getting a gift from one of his designers for his birthday of one of those old school German made Steve bears dressed uh, completely wardrobed in um, a Ralph Lauren outfit, a little miniature Ralph Lauren polo, you know, like I think maybe a, po- a flag sweater and a polo shirt with a collar popped and some pants from Purple Label or something like that. And Ralph was so delighted by it that he started making a line of sweaters with the bears on them. And so it began in an earnest way. But as his own brand and his stature rose in industry, um, a lot of disadvantaged and marginalized youths, most of the, these are uh, gang members in, in the bad part of Brooklyn back in the day when, when there were bad parts of Brooklyn. Uh, that's that, that's <laughs> yeah, when it wasn't expensive to live in Brooklyn. That's exactly right. And so a lot of these gang members were uh, sort of, uh, number one, they were, they were fighting each other uh, and, and there was violence very unfortunate. And then that's what happens in disadvantaged communities when people don't have opportunity, right? But they were unified by a common affinity for Polo Ralph Lauren clothing. And so, so they would notice in each other that, hey, you know, that, that guy's head to toe Polo uh, and that other, and, you know, and maybe that's somebody in a rival gang. And so they started to kind of bond together due to their mutual love for a, a line of clothing that was you know, clearly aspirational. Uh, it represented a lifestyle and a segment and a kind of access that they felt like that they didn't have. And so at the very least, they could dress the part. So, so they called themselves low lifes, low meaning polo. And so oftentimes, I mean, they took it to such an extreme head to toe, Ralph Lauren, everything from the hat on down to the undergarments, to the polo shirts that they would layer, multiple shirts, multiple collars popped in a layered way. You've seen that. Those guys started that. Then it'd be the, the teddy bear sweater over those shirts. And then it would be the shoes and the jackets and the scarves, the whole works. And, and yes, some of those items were lifted. They were, they were uh, stolen from stores. And that was sort of part of a rite of passage for some of them. But ironically, they started to get the attention of the designers, Af- Ralph Lauren, who then started to look to them <laughs> for inspiration for design. And so it was just, it became a circular thing, uh, which is wonderful and beautiful. But, but, but again, if you, if you take a more meta view of kind of this country that, that Ra- Polo Ralph Lauren itself was started by a young Jewish guy named Ralph Lipschitz. And he changed his name to Lauren, and he sort of created this fantasy world, this lifestyle of a very waspy way of being and an aesthetic that he actually himself wasn't a part of, but it was all like this giant mirage. And at some point, he became that. He is that now. When we think of that waspy lifestyle, you know, Beautiful houses in Connecticut or upstate New York and beautiful vintage cars and beautiful clothes and watches. And you think of Ralph Lauren. And so, so how incredibly American this is 
that then in a way that rhymes the life cycle of Ralph Lauren himself, that these low lowlifes aspire to a certain lifestyle that they did, felt like they didn't have access to, these black urban youths, and then they became actually harbingers to the designers of what, what's cool and what would be really hot for them to continue making and designing. So I, I just love that circularity. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting story that I think a lot of people don't know. You could definitely read about it a little bit online. And I just love that this chic and elegant yet really casual bear sweater is at the center of all of it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I probably didn't do a very good job of of, of uh, centering that, but but I mean, yeah, these these lowlifes just collected. They loved, they lo- they have all kinds of names uh, 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 for the different bears. Uh, there's the grandpa bear, there's chairman bear, and these are names that are kind of the unofficial names that they've given them, and they've now entered into the lexicon. Is that that's what the collectors call them? That we we have collectors of these sweaters, of which there's kind of an interesting rabbit subculture that I'm a part of, uh, we have standardized our terminology to the very same term that the lowlifes gave these bears. Uh, and so, and, and in terms of like kind of understanding which one is the most valuable, which one came first ahead in the series, you know, which ones are hand stitched versus machine or a partially machine stitched, what one is sort of the most meta in a sense that like the bear is wearing a sweater with a bear that is wearing a sweater with a bear, you know, so, 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 so all of that stuff, I think that the, 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 um, uh, the low lowlifes who are all like, you know, middle-aged guys like me are still very much setting that, st- those standards. So, um, it's super interesting. Yeah. And, you know, you, you said something about a group that you're in and people commenting, oh, only you could pull that off and I can't pull that off. And I think that that's such a common misconception when it comes to collecting anything. You hear it very often in the watch world, you hear very often in the clothing world. And I always try to impress upon people that if you've never tried it and not just try it being putting it on, but trying to make it work, then you really shouldn't say that because there's so much that people are missing out on much to our benefit (laughs) in the collecting space across multiple categories, because they have that mindset of, I can't, I can't do that. This is too outrageous for me and my lifestyle and all these things. But there's so many ways to go about it to make it work for yourself that I think people shoot themselves in the foot and pass up on really great things, whether it's a sweater, a watch, a car, a jacket, you know? Yeah, totally. I, I, I would love to hear from you, Cameron, if there's something that you've you sort of thought for a long time that, oh, I could never pull that off. But then you gave it a try, you took a risk, and then you're like, I love it. I love it. And I am pulling it off. I mean, do you have something like that? A hundred percent. One of them is actually, I love the flag sweaters from Ralph Lauren. I never wear anything uh, usually with, you know, logos or print on it. It's pretty cut and dry that way for me. And when I got one of those sweaters a long time ago, I was nervous to wear it. And then I started wearing it. And then I bought another one that was like all white with a white flag. So it was all kind of monochromed out. And then you start getting into this whole world, especially in Ralph Lauren, because they just would make these products almost to push people like me to want to wear and buy these things that I've never tried them on. You know, I got like this bright yellow rain jacket from them and it doesn't really rain here in Arizona, but I had to have it. Uh And, you know, I just, I fell in love with it. And when I get the chance to wear it, I do. Um, Same thing with watches. You know, I've always loved small watches, but like today I'm wearing my wife's really, really small Cartier tank, uh, vintage under 30 millimeter, like ultra small. And 
this watch is so cool with a sweater on. This watch is so cool with a hoodie on. And most people would probably shy away from something this size. And the same thing for larger watches. I always felt like an Omega Speedmaster was way too big for me. But you put that watch on and at 42 millimeters, it's actually perfect. I can't imagine it actually being any smaller. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Just kind of one of those things until you, until you put something on or really give it a chance. Then I always try to impress upon people to stay away from saying that it doesn't work for you because I, I think people miss out. Exactly. I mean, I, I've heard if I had a nickel for every time I heard a, a friend of mine say, you know what, I can't I can't wear a gold watch. I can't pull that off. Ew, gold <laughs> watches. Ugh, you know. And then, you know, I'm very grateful that that I was able to acquire a, a gold day date, you know, some years back. And you'll see me with that on like they're like, dang, can I try that? I'm like, sure, go for it. And then they love it, right? Right. So that's it's undeniable. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's something inherently very, very good about it. You know, maybe it's just that that the gold looks great with their skin tone. It brings, you know, it's very warm or it just kind of offsets maybe the gold buttons on their on their navy blazer. Another one that I admit that I spent years poo-pooing and I go, okay, I don't I don't I don't think I can ever pull this off and it's maybe kind of gauche. Uh, but I was won over when I saw it in in the metal, so to speak. And that's a carbon ceramic um, Hublot, a Hublot Big Bang. I have an all-white carbon ceramic Big Bang, and it's just fantastic on the wrist. And you have to sort of get over, you know, oh, but it seems like Big Bang, you know, the Hublot is just copying AP. What's it? Well, no. Actually, if you look at the history of you know, right. and kind of like the, the design of the, you know, what, who's, who's really copying who. And, uh, you know, where, at what point do you start counting, uh, you know, who came up with the polo idea? It may not even really matter. And so uh, uh, that's another example where I just love the watch. I enjoy it. And you start to become, <laughs> not, not that I'm, I'm your typical Hublot Big Bang, uh, you know, uh, wearer. <laughs> I, know, I, don't, I don't have a Lamborghini and, uh, and I don't play professional football in Europe, but, but you do start to own it and understand it. And it maybe, maybe it changes the way you think about your outfit or your shoes. So I, I love that the range that sometimes stretching ourselves can, 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 and can get us. Yeah. And, and I think the thing about that is that is also something that you obviously love to explain these things to people and show people why it's cool to collect things. It's less about what you have, more about why you have it. And I always preach that to people. And that is such a watch that is one of those instances where I'm sure anybody that sees it is like, what is that? And tell me all about it. <laughs> That's right. I think another great watch that you have in your collection, it's extremely special. It's, it's an Omega Flightmaster owned by John B. McKay. And this watch just has such an incredible story. And I would love for you to, to kind of dive into that. Yeah, absolutely. So John B. McKay was, um, you know, at around the same time that they were coming up with the Mercury astronauts for NASA, uh, you know, they, they were pulling from all different branches of, of the military. A lot of them were Navy pilots, things like that. The Air Force had their own sort of space program. I can't remember what the name of it was. And so there was a group of, I think, just a handful of mostly Air Force test pilots that flew all of those experimental planes, like the X-1B, and there's there all different ones. And uh, John B. McKay was one of them. So he was 
for all intents and purposes, part of the early astronaut program. And I think that at one point he was a part of NASA and was was part of that group that could have been selected to go to, to be part of Apollo. And so he was a very, very successful test pilot, holds the record for a number of things. Um, the, the most notable is that he flew the highest of any human being. He actually uh, reached the upper atmosphere. I think he still holds that record. That's flying the highest in in a in an aircraft, right? Uh, that you weren't on a on an actual uh, rocket. And he actually famously had a terrible crash that he walked away from. Um, he crashed uh, his experimental craft, and I can't remember which one of the X jets it was, but you would recognize that. You know, there's a lot of vintage photos of him, um, and and he. So on landing, somehow, I don't know if it was like a torque issue or whatever, but, it, but he rolled the aircraft upside down and then the cockpit just dug into the ground and he suffered some pretty bad head injuries. He survived that crash and died maybe six or eight years later in the early 70s um, from complications resulting from those head injuries. And so, um, uh, but, but I, I look at someone like that as uh, truly heroic. He was someone that by virtue of being a test pilot was very, very brave, who pushed the envelope to advance aviation, to advance really mankind and the species, and to put us on a one-yard line. All of these men did put us on a one-yard line with regards to space exploration. So uh, he had a watch, which was actually given to him by Omega, which was the flight master. Now, the flight master itself, without any uh, connection to any historic figure, is itself just a fantastic watch. It's very avant-garde. It's very avant-garde. Um, the, the colorway is fantastic. It's very, very useful and functional with GMT function. Um, it wears beautifully on the wrist. It just feels really comfortable. I think it's a beautiful watch. And so I had always been in love with the Flightmaster. I was on some sort of watch forum, and I think it, it was his, his daughter, uh, his grown daughter, was just kind of getting rid of some things in his estate, and so sold the watch to me, and uh, it came with um, you know all kinds of documentation. It also came with documentation from Omega verifying the provenance that, that this belonged to John B. McKay, and, and that they had originally gifted it to him. And so it, it was uh, tastefully refurbished. Uh, he wasn't wearing the flight master that I own uh, during that crash, but but he did wear it for most of his life uh, or most of his career after. So uh, uh, it, it's very special to me, and 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 the connection to him and the connection to that kind of bravery is incredibly interesting to me. And I love that the flight master was the watch that was given to him. Obviously, the tie between the flight master and him being a pilot, but I love the idea of how as we said, avant-garde that design is of that watch, but also how almost avant-garde he was as a person to kind of go that extra mile to really, you know, put everybody on the map and 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 make his stamp in history. Like there's no other watch that Omega makes or made rather that could have been a, a more perfect, even if it didn't have the name Flightmaster, that design alone, there was no other watch that could have been given to him. And I love that. Yeah, that's right. And I have other things that, that you and I haven't talked about that are similar. In fact, I'm going to literally go over to where my um, boxes of watches are, the cases, 
And if you'll just give me a moment, I'm going to pull out some other pieces that we can talk about that are that are similarly. Yeah, because I know you collect a lot of military style watches too, and and lots of other great stuff. So I think it'd, it'd be fun to chat about it. Yeah, that's right. And so, I, for example, I have an old Tudor with the small rose logo that was given to the skipper of a Navy destroyer. And, uh, and on the back of the watch, it was kind of like his retirement gift. And it says to Commander C.S. Watson from USS Ajax Chiefs. And so that was a watch given to him by his team. And it's just a beautiful watch. And I, again, I think about the history of this one. I have a um, 1950s era Bulova that belonged to a um, C.S. Laporte, the engraving. And this guy was a scientist that had previously worked on the um, Manhattan Project. So that that's incredibly interesting. And so, so yeah, there's, there's just, there for a while there, I really got into, in some ways, not so much collecting the watch as much as, that's only 50%, but also collecting the provenance. Amazing. Yeah, the, the Accutron gi- getting given to a scientist is kind of also the ultimate, you know, gift. There's really no other watch you could give a scientist, in my opinion, that that makes sense. Yeah, that's right. And then you mentioned the military watches. I have, uh, gosh, you know, I, I hate to, sometimes it's difficult to talk about them, uh, uh, but because of geopolitics, I have this Eterna Contiki diver's watch that the engraving on the back, it was issued to the uh, famous Israeli sort of crack special forces team called the Shayatet 13. And uh, this was a very exclusive special forces group. You know, famously, they freed the hostages, um, you know, when the, I think it was 1970, oh, I can't remember the year, 72 maybe, when those Olympic athletes were were, were held hostage on, an, um, um, on a, a TWA flight. And so uh, that watch, you know, just kind of, you know, I remember John Mayer uh, famously said in one of the very first Houdinki Talking Watches videos, and he's like, I think, referencing like a 5513 Submariner, uh, no date, military issue. And so uh, with the, with the um, fixed um, uh, uh, spring bars, but he said, you know, don't worry about it if you, you smack a door jam because somebody else did a lot of other uh, way tougher things while wearing it. And so, so that's the way I feel about these watches. Yeah, really special watches. I mean, those are grail level Samariners for a lot of Samariner collectors. I, I would say probably most Samariner collectors, a mill sub is kind of the grail. And and yeah, I mean, it's it, the, the price tag on them makes you feel like you need to be precious, but it's also one of those things, like he said, it's like, don't worry, people did a lot crazier shit with these watches and you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, I have a, a a wonderful 6263 Daytona. Is it the tropical dial one? Yeah, yeah. The, the dial, thank you. The dial has, has has tropicalized into a very even brown. It's stunning. It, thank you. It, it is stunning. And and uh, to me, it's the perfect 6263. It is just so aesthetically pleasing. It just looks great on the wrist. So I got it before values went crazy, you know, and again, just, this is a testament to just, just buy what you like, not what's popular and you don't have to be right, but maybe you get lucky and you're right. And the whole world catches on afterwards and then it becomes a, you know, something much more valuable. And that's kind of nice to know. But in my case, I, I just bought it because I loved it. And I think this was even before tropicalized watches were particularly 
like a thing. But I, I really shouldn't. I went through a period where I thought I really shouldn't wear it because it's so, uh, it, the value of it is so high now. But, but I do wear it. And I do encourage people to just wear your watches, man. 100%. And I love that watch specifically because most people would be hard pressed to probably know this, but my favorite color is brown. (laughs) And and I love when these these dials turned that milk chocolatey mocha colored brown. They're just, they're incredible. And your examples, you know, a testament to all that. Yeah, 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 yes. It's it's hard not to look at it when you know when you're on the airplane and you got a few moments to just sort of drift off into your own thoughts. I I, I stare at that dial. So it's stunning. Uh, yeah. So so then yeah. To, in terms of the flight jackets, and I would say that it, you know may seem like I'm some sort of strangely kind of a a, a milit. You know, I, I'm not a militant. You know, uh, a, a a pro-war kind of person, why I collect these artifacts of conflict and war uh, probably has more in my deep down in my psyche uh, has to do with just a desire to be connected um, to a, a maybe, maybe um, nostalgia for times past or, or my own family's connection to uh, war and wartime conflict and things like that. Absolutely. And I think the other part is, is like, to go along with that, these these items were surprisingly very stylish back then. And a lot of the items that are given to personnel in that space now are not necessarily that. And I, I would say the flight jackets still exist, but I, I understand it because a lot of these things had style and they all kind of fit into the things that you love. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. People can get the wrong idea, but it's not about that. Yeah, yeah. I literally know... No one, tall, short, fat, skinny, full head of hair or bald or whatever. I know no one who doesn't look awesome in a Navy issue G1 or a beat up, distressed A2. You know, no one looks bad in that stuff. And it go, and they go with everything um, to, 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 to date. My go-to jacket, you know, when I went to Africa on safari, and I knew that the temperature wasn't going to be like super hot all the time and, and, uh, and the night drives were going to be cold and chilly. I brought with me a vintage Irwin and Foster A2. And I just kind of felt like I, I should, I'd never been to Africa uh, and I was going with my family and some really good friends and our children. And I thought I'm going to be, I'm going to be making memories and I would like to make memories with this jacket on. And, uh, and it was the perfect jacket. It was already beat up from decades of use. Uh, a cu- the last couple of decades, uh, uh, the, the abuse was applied by me. And I never had to worry about it laying around in the back of a Jeep uh, or, or getting dust on it. And I knew that uh, the photos from that trip were going to be, uh, we were going to look back at those photos in, uh, in the decades to come. And of course, I wanted to look good, right? Um, I thought it was better than some fleece thing from Patagonia. Uh, nothing, no, there's no, nothing wrong with a fleece thing from Patagonia, but I'd rather look great in a, in a, in a, in a vintage A2. So, uh, they have their time and place, but a vintage A2 on a safari is maybe as cool as it gets. I, I, I happen to think so, you know, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so my, my collection of, um, old flight jackets, it, 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 it started, I think, you know, a lot of these things kind of started in parallel. And I have to say that I did not, set out, you know, at some young age to be like, I'm going to start collecting old, you know, handmade suits and I'm going to collect watches and I'm going to collect flight jackets. 
these things kind of happen very small and they end up growing into passions over time. And so I bought my first flight jacket probably in college. Again, I wandered into a, a, a thrift store or like a Salvation Army. The very first one I bought was this old, old G1 that had a hand-painted patch on the breast. It was very simple, single patch that was hand-painted. I've since found out that was probably painted in theater in Italy. And that at the time, um, and because based on the age of it, it predated, it was a 1940s, it was certainly issued in the 1940s. And so looking at the history of that, it, it just became this incredible incredibly cool thread to pull on that there were some members uh, uh, over in a European theater, not the Pacific, that were issued that had the option of choosing a G1 instead of an A2 and that um, to have a hand-painted patch uh, that was in theater, painted by maybe some old grandma in Italy. Uh, that was super interesting to me, and so I, 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 I you know, uh, I was bitten by the bug. And over time, I would say probably the military jackets are the most infrequently collected, infrequently added items in my collection because they're really, really hard to find now. Um, but there was a time when I think they were a lot easier to find, and no one was really collecting them. And so I felt like a weirdo, like, why am I sort of hitting up, you know, like an estate sale? And if I saw somebody uh, selling their dad's old military um, footlocker and all of the things or like some pieces of uniform, I would always ask, like, well, wait a minute, I, I think I noticed here that your father or your grandfather was a pilot. Do you have his old jacket? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, that's in the, up in the attic, you know. And so so that, there was a time when when no one felt that these were of particular value. And, uh, and, and I think that that time is still, it's still a little bit like that. Like I would say on an individual item basis, a really top, top old flight jacket in great condition. That's got amazing patches, amazing history and provenance. You know, maybe I have one, I have a G one uh, that belonged to a squadron mate of Pappy Boyington. Uh, this is the famous Black Sheep Squadron, you know, uh, made famous by the TV show with Robert Conrad, you know, Baba Black Sheep, right? Um, I, I have his squadron mate, uh, Major Winnick. That jacket is probably like the equivalent of a mill sub or the equivalent of a tropicalized 6263 Daytona. Perhaps I might even argue the equivalent of like a Paul Newman Daytona. It's like this grail thing. But, you know, the value of that uh, is nowhere near what the watches are. Right. And to me, that's an odd thing because the rarity is completely uh, on an, an or a couple of probably two orders of magnitude more rare uh, than uh, any of those other watches. And so so I, I still think that that's an undervalued um, asset class, as it were. I don't I don't even think people consider it an asset class like they do watches and artwork and cars. And so I think that there's still a lot of headroom there. But but if you can imagine um, back 15, 20 years ago, I knew no one else that was collecting old leather flight jackets uh, that had been issued and flown. And, um, and I think it's a really, really fun category. I mean, you have World War II era jackets. And then just within that era, you can have A2s versus G1s. You could get into just G1s themselves. You can get into Navy pilots versus Marine pilot jackets. You know, the, the Navy... Navy ones, the regulations allowed 
they were more free. Those pilots were more free to put all kinds of patches on the back, on the front, on the sleeves. Whereas the Marine Corps, you couldn't put anything on the back and you had to be more modest in terms of your patching. So that's really interesting. The A2s tended to have more hand-painted artwork on them because these guys were over in Europe and they were you know, uh, in, in between uh, sorties, they, they, they had a lot of downtime to paint stuff on them. One of my jackets that I love was a World War II bomber pilot um, uh, that had served in, in Italy and, you know, did bombing runs over, over German cities. And I think that it's common knowledge that, that uh, during the peak times of the European campaign, some fairly significant percentage that was around 30% of the planes would not come back during each mission. In other words, you had a you know 30% chance of dying every time you went up into the air. And my point is I must have the luckiest flight jacket in the world because I have one where the guy flew 31 missions. Unbelievable. So you do the math on those odds, right? When <laughs> you went up in the air, you had a 30% chance of not coming back times 31, right? And so that guy, that guy and his Unbelievable. luckiest. And so, so, you know, each mission is denoted by like a, a, a separate painted a bomb that, that was um, on the right breast of the, of the jacket. And so, so each one is completely unique. Each one has incredible history. If I can get the log books of the pilot with the jacket, oftentimes, you know, the seller would throw it in there. Uh, I would do that, uh, get the log books. So you have the, the gentleman's history. And I try to honor these folks. I kind of feel like that I'm just kind of the custodian of these jackets, not the owner, uh, but the custodian of them for for future generations, for for people who might want to understand that history in the future. Absolutely. And I think the best part about them is that you can bring them outside of the house and you're not going to lose sleep over it. And you can enjoy them and you can be the custodian and take care of them, but also put them to work. Yeah. And they stood the test of time then, then they definitely stand the test of time now. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and so, yeah, so I, I started to talk about like how in World War II, you can kind of get into uh, G1s and A2s. And then as you move to the Korean conflict era, a lot of G1s um, that are very, uh, they're, they're less hand painted, but they have sort of embroidered patches where, where the patching, where the squadron des- patches and other things got a little bit more colorful, and some of it maybe not not particularly um, appropriate for the workplace. Uh, <laughs> and and then and then as you move to the Vietnam era, that was definitely true. You know, some of the things that they got sewn onto their jackets, some of the patches that they got designed while they were overseas by maybe some cottage shop that was able to create a, a custom patch for the pilots or that squadron. Uh, some of those patches are definitely not not appropriate for work. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they, and that, that, and that, that some of them are delightful because of that. And so it, they, they get interesting. And then as you moved into the modern era, um, you do start to get into, yeah, I, I would say that the A2s got a little bit more sedate. I think the Air Force became a little bit more restrictive about how patches can be applied. And then the Navy seemed like it was pretty mercurial on a case-by-case basis where because given the advent of Top Gun, uh, uh, I think a lot of the younger pilots wanted to 
be prideful of their accomplishments or number of um, squadrons they had been in or maybe a number of landings uh, that they they had had. And so uh, some of the jackets became very colorfully adorned. And that was my understanding was that that was sometimes frowned upon by the older pilots in the community who thought that, you know, hey, it's not about bragging uh, about everything that you've done. Uh, And so oftentimes you'll find that the more accomplished pilots had um, the more modest uh, and and the more modest looking jackets with the least number of patches. So that I find interesting. Tell me about the other type of jacket that you collect, which are these punk jackets, if you will. Yeah. You've been able to really source some very special ones, and they couldn't be more polar opposite <laughs> than than the, yes. the pilot jackets. And I think that th- that's just such an interesting juxtaposition between owning the two types. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for going there with that. Yeah, I, I, if the pilot jackets sort of represent being called to service, responding to what your country was asking you to do, exhibiting a certain kind of bravery then the punk rocker jackets are, are you're right they're, they're in many ways the opposite they're they're sort of you know they were worn by folks that felt like they didn't fit in uh that would never be in the military right um that were in fact trying to rebel against sort of conventional thinking and certainly you know very very they, i think the punk movement you know came out of a skepticism of 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 government um, it was the you know rebellious youth of, of, of 1970s, kind of the Margaret Thatcher era. You know, kids couldn't get jobs; they were poor, uh, so they were angry. Um, so there was a mistrust of government, and so yeah, you're right. In many ways, they were polar opposites. But what they have in common is a certain swagger, is a certain um, hey, uh, 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 this represents who I am. And there's a certain swagger and bravery associated with taking a certain point of view. And so I, I would argue that maybe that's that's the one area that the jackets have in common, uh, other than the fact that they're also made out of leather. Uh, uh, but 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 the punk rocker jackets are again are just incredibly fascinating. You know, each one is unique and have hand painted things on them and band you know, slogans or, or sometimes lyrics uh, that, that are um, very moving and powerful and, and represents, you know, what the wearer, the original wearer was about. You know, I, I kind of had my own, you know, I, you know, I was a bit of a, a rebellious youth and tried to be subversive and I had my own, you know, lame jacket. I couldn't really afford to get a good leather jacket. And so, so I had a cheapo one and, you know, patched it up and painted some of it with with my favorite bands, but but some of these other ones that I've collected ha- are just works of art. Uh, uh, in fact, my friend Ricky, who is um, a dyed in a wool punk rocker, going way back, he's a middle aged guy now, uh, but but he's very very just one of the most talented painters that I happen to know, and he still paints them and he's still making jackets for, you know, uh, various folks, um, in, in the, in the music, uh, community. Um, some of his jackets are worn by a very famous folks, you know, like Travis Barker or Billy Elish or, you know, it runs the gamut. Right. Um, you know, sometimes he'll tell me like, Oh, so-and-so just bought one of my jackets, you know? And I'm like, Whoa, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> he's um, an artist. 
he's an artist and, and I've commissioned him to make me uh, two or three, I think three jackets. Uh, one, um, I happen to, you know, have, you know, I grew up with a lot of these guys that were in punk rock bands here in the Seattle area. Um, before the grunge era, there was like a really vibrant and robust punk um, uh, scene here in Seattle. And I wanted to honor some of my friends. I'm still friends with them. You know, Jim Tillman of the U-Men, you know, Matt Wright of Gas Huffer, um, you know, the people that were, uh, you know, uh, they were the folks in Bikini Kill and Slater Kinney. And, you know, j- just so I put all of my favorite Seattle punk bands on this one jacket that Ricky, uh, um, that I commissioned Ricky to do. And, and sometimes I will, you know, even after Ricky hands it off to me, I'll, I'll pick up a brush and, and paint some things on there to just kind of add a little bit more of my own touch to them. So, Love that. so I, I think, I think they're just a lot of fun and those jackets I will wear. And, you know, I'll leave it up to you, Cameron, and, and my friends to decide whether I'm pulling them off or I just look like a middle-aged fool. But, but you know, there, there, there are times when it's appropriate to, you know, put on an old crusty leather jacket and um, uh, it can be a lot of fun. So, I love it. I think, again, the, the juxtaposition between collecting the two types of jackets is not only two categories that, that are of interest to you, but they both tell completely different stories. And I think that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. And and for those who are maybe scratching their heads a little bit and wondering like how you know how, how do you reconcile all of those things? Um, well I, I kind of turn that question to the to the listeners of your podcast. If you, if if anyone wants to go to my, you know, my my Instagram is not private. You know, you can just search for my name, Jonathan Sposato. It's at Jonathan Sposato uh, is my Instagram handle. And if you want to just kind of peruse my feed and you can tell me whether I'm, you know, uh, whether, whether, uh, what you think of, of my collection. No, no, it's, it's fantastic. And I'll definitely be sure to link you up here. But the last thing that I want to talk about here is kind of the last piece of the puzzle of building this nostalgic curated lifestyle and that's cars and i feel like your collection really spans across so many different design elements very similar to your watch collection and we're talking super saab 900 a 79 mercedes wagon in an incredible red paint vintage 911 vintage defender and i'm sure a few more is car collecting another one of those what meets the eye sort of philosophies for you I think it is. I think it is. And and again, it, it, I can't I can't underscore enough. Really, just collect what you like, and it and don't worry about whether, you know, it's going to go up in value or down. Oh, I mean, you know, you don't want to lose your shirt, but you should collect for you and collect what you enjoy. And there was a time like the Saab is a great example of where I've always, always from a young age loved the Saab 900 Turbo. Um, I had a chance to, to own like a really beat up one when I was in college. And I have never, never gotten over how wonderful turbo, that 80s turbo lag feels. So Saab was one of those first car companies that commercialized the use of turbo in a very successful way um, at scale, you know, across all their, most of their 900s. And that's what I grew up with. So I'm used to like, you know, you, you put the accelerator down, you're in the right gear and the turbo sort of starts to spool up. And then it, then, then, then you get that push, you know, on your back, you know, where your head kind of tilts back as the, as the turbo kicks in. That lag is so much fun. And, um, and so there was a time again, that, that people had kind of forgotten about those old Saab 900 turbos, especially the SPGs. And I 
bought one and it was great. It was one of the, the first SPGs sold in North America. I think they sold 11 of them that year because they were just kind of prototyping this concept of an SPG. SPG, I think, stands for Special Products Group. Um, so maybe it's the ver- it's sub equivalent of M or Mercedes AMG or something like that. So uh, they didn't sell very many of them. And then it was over the course of three or four years that they got a little bit more popular. That has now become the grail Saab for um, uh, Saab collectors. And I would say that that community has grown tremendously as people have started to understand and fall in love with, with how those cars drive and how oddly quirky and idiosyncratic, you know, the, it's front wheel drive. The engine is actually mounted backwards. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the ignition is on the, right. uh, not, not on the steering column, but on the center console. You know, a lot of these really, I would argue, smart engineering things that makes the car just a joy to drive. And so so that's that's just one example. And 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 I think that what what my entire car collection has in common is something that was sort of superlative in a way. That from an engineering standpoint, it might have represented what was best at that time and clever at the time. And they may not have been Always, in, in fact, oftentimes they were not the most commercially successful. So uh, another car that I guess I would talk about is, uh, I really should only have one of these, but I ended up with two 90s era BMW 8 Series coupes. So I have the 850CI and I also have an, an 850CSI. Uh, and oh, interesting. So- yeah, yeah. And, and the reason why, and they both look nearly identical, except for some um, um, kind of bodywork things. They're both silver. And by the way, all of my cars are silver or kind of like a graphite gray. And that's the, that's, that's the unifying element <laughs> across all of them. Um, the exception would be the red um, station wagon. And there's a fun story there too. But um, it started out silver. But the BMW 850s, um, they represent um, sort of the apex at that time of what BMW was doing, but but in some ways they shot themselves in the foot. They made the car a little bit too imbued with technology. And a lot of times, a lot of people would argue that it did not drive like a BMW. It did not have that really analogy feel uh, that they associated with its predecessor, which was a 635 CSI. Sure. But of course, ironically, now, if you take into consideration how modern BMWs drive, the 8 Series from the 90s is plenty analog enough. It's plenty. <laughs> it's, more, it's more than fine. It's more than fine. It's incredibly visceral, especially the 850 CSI. I mean, that V12 roars, and you feel that. That that you practically feel the heat coming off of the uh, front uh, engine compartment. Right. The exhaust has a wonderful note. And so, so, so that's the other thing about collecting, whether it's watches or jackets or cars, that the conventional thinking at a certain time of what the collectors are valuing, that can actually change pretty quickly, you know, over the course of, say, four or five years. And all of a sudden, as that brand changes, uh, as, as, as that category changes, and continues to evolve with new products, we look back and we say, hey, you know what? That was actually really great. That, that's actually one of the best BMWs ever made, right? Um, and so I think that you're started, you've started to see that with the Z8 as well. The Z8 had some problems, some, some newfangled alloy sort of body mountings were 
somehow uh, there was some deformation and people had to take them in to get them fixed. And it was very, and so, so the, the, the values really dropped, but then now people realize, well, that's actually in the grand scheme of things. It's not that costly to do the, the to, to, to do those modifications. Um, uh, and in fact, it really was the last of the truly beautiful, uh, normally aspirated uh, stick shift, uh, you know, non-turbo roadsters that BMW has ever made. And it's a true, true successor to the 507 Roadster of the 50s, which are practically untouchable. I think the last one traded hands for over $2 million. So, So people have now realized that the Z8 is a true successor to that. And so now values have really- That's next to come. Yeah, that's right. You've had so much success in your life and no doubt to your passion and hard work. And you've really created a curated lifestyle, success or not. I think you would have done that. You're, you're too kind. I, I'm, I would be the first to say I'm, I've been more lucky than good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, and I would say, you know, again, Joy Sauce is such a wonderful culmination of your professional career and your love for collecting. And I would love to know what collecting has done for you both professionally and personally. Wonderful question. My answer is that collecting has caused me to look at the world differently. Look at the world in terms of what's valuable to you and that it's okay if it's not necessarily valuable to others yet. Because maybe the world will come around. And I think that as an entrepreneur, you are always on that knife's edge. Every single time you start a new company, and you've got what you think is a very valuable core new insight. Every time you're there, it's just you're on this knife's edge, sort of like, is this really going to fly or am I going to fail miserably? And if you go ahead and go through with it and do it, and you launch that startup, you launch that company, and you create that technology or that platform or that web service, that brand, you hire people, you start acquiring customers, partnerships, you grow the company, but you're not yet profitable. And maybe it takes you three years to get to profitability. You're really betting on your ability to see the future and to, to, and to try to predict what people will want to love, love enough that they will pay you for it. And so collecting is similar. You know, I don't collect to flip these things or to sell them in five years to, you know, make money. I've, I've, my, my, much to my wife's chagrin, she jokes that you don't sell anything. And to an extent, I, I love having these objects around me. They do delight me. You know, when I have my old flight jackets uh, displayed, uh, on these mannequins in a row, it, it delights me to walk past them down this hallway of my house, you know, to, to kind of viscerally experience and smell and touch and feel the history of these jackets. So I don't collect these things to, to, to flip them. They're not investments per se. Um, it's just merely nice to know when the market has, when the market agrees with you. And so uh, I think that that's what it, I, these things collecting has in common with business. It's, it's just you're, you're testing yourself. Does, is the market going to, going to agree with me or is it going to disagree with me? And that's, I think that's interesting. Amazing. Jonathan, let's wrap it up here with the collector's gym rundown. You can answer these questions based on any of the items that you collect. Uh, and let's just get started. Okay, go for it. What's the one that got away? Uh, a number of watches. Uh, I would say 
a 16 series uh, Rolex GMT with like just perfectly sort of pumpkin uh, aged loom plots, um, Jubilee band, you know, different, a number of those that, you know, you're traveling, you know, you're on business in Japan and you duck down a, 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 a you know, just like a little a narrow alley in around um, uh, Harajuku and there's like this hole in the wall, little vintage watch shop. And like you all of a sudden realize every single vintage watch here is perfect. Right. It's absolutely perfect and amazing. And you're like, you know what? Ah, you know, I, I got 20 more minutes before I have to, you know, get on the subway and make it to the next meeting across town. And you right. uh, try to come back later tonight and then you don't. Right. So, you so don't. Uh, there's, there's definitely um, a few of those. I would say that there have been some really, really gorgeous, lovely Omega Speedmaster Pros early series, um, you know, maybe uh, arrow, um, arrow hands. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, before they went up in value, I, I look back and I'm like, God, those are beautiful watches. Um, why yeah, didn't they sure. I, why didn't I say yes there? So I would say that there's there's that. I'm not sure that I, again because it's it's still sort of like a nascent, lesser defined collector category. I would say that with the flight jackets or the punk rocker jackets, I'm not sure that they're is as much of a concept of one that got away. They're, they're all really, I'm, I'm incre- truly incredibly grateful and consider myself hella lucky that I even have the honor of, of being the custodian of the ones that I own. And so I can't think of some ones that got away. And again, the, the, you know, the, the frequency with which we add these is very low. So, uh, um, and with cars, Oh my gosh, you know, I could remember just when, about everything. <laughs> just about everything. I could remember when Aston Martin DB5s, the James Bond car. I can remember I had a line on a Birch Silver DB5. I, I happen to have a DB6, but uh, but a DB5. Um, I remember a long time ago, probably when I was in my 30s and was starting to get into cars, I could remember when they were like $140,000 and still some, but now, I mean, you could look up how much they are. They're 10 times that. Yeah. Um, forget it. Yeah. Forget it. Exactly. Uh, and in birch silver, I mean, Oh my God. I mean, yeah, I think that, that's perfect. <laughs> one that I was referring to was even a left-hand drive car. That was like maybe in upstate New York or something. That oh, wow, you can't beat that. Yeah. And so, and so I think that the, in, with cars, there's one of those, uh, I, I think older, uh, Porsche 556s. There was, they've always been valuable, but there was a time when they were the price. They were not quite the unobtainium <laughs> that they are now. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, uh, you know, I think it would have been fun. And uh, more modestly, I have an I have an old 60s 911 T. It would have been fun to, uh, which I've kind of stealthily upgraded to basically a 911s spec but i think it would have been fun to have picked up a 912 it, which is actually uh, in some ways more fun to drive and, and and now prices of those have really gone up to where you know maybe it's um a uh, 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 little less fun to collect but still very good very an excellent car to buy no doubt how about the on deck circle so what's maybe something that you you're actively hunting for we could try and manifest and put into the ether here <laughs> Yeah. Um, so one of the uh, uh, my favorite watches in my collection is a, a 70s era 
wood dial gold day date. And it's got those. Yeah, they're they're beautiful. And again, you know, just buy what you love because there was a time, certainly when they first came out, people hated them. That's why there Absolutely. are very few of them. Like a lot of the dealers, as you know, Cameron, they they took the dials out and swapped them for just the regular champagne, uh, standard champagne dials because they couldn't sell them. People didn't want a wood dial watch. Right. Um, and, and, and each one varies too, which is very cool. Exactly. And that, and that's exactly my point. I would say on deck might be, I, I have a birch dial one, which is kind of nice. Birch, it kind of comes off a little bit more orange looking with these fine lines, but they had a mahogany dial and they had an oak dial. And there was even a fourth one. Is it cherry? But anyway, it'd be really fun to, to you know, collect all four. Uh, so that's kind of have the set. Yeah, have a set. Uh, that may be on deck. Um, um, and then I'm not sure about flight jackets and things like that, but but I would say that with older bespoke clothing, the aforementioned tailor to JFK where he went exclusively. JFK bought – a lot of times people thought that he wore Brooks Brothers. I think, I think that when he was a junior senator, he did wear Brooks Brothers and Jay Press. But when he was president, he had all of his suits made – at Chip Davidson. And so Chip was the name of the store. David, the company name is Chip Davidson. And Davidson, this elder Davidson senior was JFK's tailor. And I think there's from the 60s, early 70s, anything from Chip Davidson, I think is very collectible. Blazers, suits. You know, if you're lucky to find something that's near your size and you can take it to your favorite good tailor to get it tweaked to fit you. I think that that's, I think that's also stuff that should be on deck for anybody who's into, um, uh, into, you know, really great clothing. I think now that Kilgore is no longer around and they were the exclusive, uh, not exclusive, but they were one of the most popular tailors to, you know, people like Fred Astaire, Cary Grant, who's one of my favorite actors of all time, Cary Grant, had almost all of his suits made at Kilgore. Now that they're no longer uh, in existence, I think that they got all the, the, the brand, uh, they closed. And then I think um, Davis and Sons hired all of their cutters uh, and took over their orders. Uh, I, I think a Kilgore, uh, vintage Kilgore suits uh, should be very, very collectible. And that would be fun to collect. Yeah, that would be special. Yeah, yeah. How about the unobtainable? So this is one that's maybe it's too expensive or in a museum, private collection is just complete unobtainium. Yeah, I'm going to give you a couple of uh, uh, those. I, I Lately, I've been thinking a lot about TV and movie memorabilia. I actually wish that I had some artifacts or things from three shows. The original Star Trek, the original series, you know, whether it's like a tricorder or a phaser, there's, a, there's, there's somebody that has, um, I think it's Paul Allen that has Captain Kirk's chair. Right. And that is in, uh, in the museum, in the Mopop uh, Museum of Popular Culture here in Seattle, um, behind glass, uh, you know, uh, so there's stuff like that, that I find terribly interesting. Another show that I loved was the recent well, uh, maybe it's now been about 15 years, but there was a reboot of Battlestar Galactica 
where the costumes sure. and the props were just amazing. And that, that um, I think, I think Commander Adama's desk was uh, available at auction at one point. It sold for hardly anything because nobody was really kind of looking for that stuff. Um, that that I, I have no idea what that would sell for now. So yeah, so there are things like that that I think for me these days would be kind of un, unobtainium because of their cost and extreme rarity and that they're not even um, available for sale. You know, I, you know, the ultimate thing would be the one of the spinners, one of the cars, the flying cars, uh, which was a rolling chassis and was a real car that they drove uh, on the set from the, mo- the original Blade Runner. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> and again, the aforementioned Paul Allen, late Paul Allen has one that's hanging off of the ceiling like it's flying at Mopop. And then the second one is owned, it's in private hands, uh, a Japanese collector, and he's restored it. Um, and then there's a third car and no one knows where that is. Super interesting. Yeah. It'll pop up one day. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> yeah, who knows? You know, it, it's strange. Yeah. Affectations and the collector gene, um, uh, you know, it takes us to, to, to crazy places. The page one rewrite. So if you could collect anything besides your current collections, money, no object, what would it be? Oh, gosh, it's an interesting question. I, I, I might say a certain kind of house. You know, wouldn't it be neat to own a Frank Lloyd Wright in the Chicago area. Right. Uh, and then a Wexler or a, um, a Lautner, a John Lautner in, in Palm Springs. Yeah, or Nutra or like all these, all these old mid-century guys. Exactly. I think that that could be, I, I think, and, and maybe that was just sort of an interesting top of the, off the top of my head response because I think I read about there are some people that do do that, you know, celebrities, you know, people like Brad Pitt. He's very, you know, I remember we, we do own a mid-century modern house in Palm Springs um, uh, that we, we, we like to go down to. Again, we, we're just so fortunate. I remember no one was buying the, you know, Palm Springs was not popular at the time. This was almost 30 years ago. And my, uh, my wife, my, my girlfriend at the time took me down to Palm Springs for a weekend, a birthday weekend. And I fell in love with the desert and I started looking at houses and I couldn't believe how inexpensive they were. They were, they couldn't even give them away. And so we bought a mid-century modern house and we've really been into that. And I know Cameron, you're, you're, that's an interest area of yours as well. And, but then, you know, like maybe like 15 or 20 years later, we heard that Brad Pitt was shopping for houses in Palm Springs and that he kind of has a philosophy that he ha- that he applies to buying houses that's almost like how we collect watches or cars or anything that he he likes to curate a certain type of house so that when he's there there's some you know he enjoys being at one house just as much as the other house and that they have some common things common themes and so so I think that could be an interesting category but uh, probably uh, not not financially uh, um, uh, practical for me to do that. <laughs> How about the goat? So, who do you look up to in the collecting world or admire? That's a great collector out there. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I guess because we were just talking about watches, I think John Goldberger. I admire. You know, of course, everyone admires John. I'm very honored when he likes the occasional posts that I make. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> right. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I kind of got blessed by by the top guy or something. But but the reason why I admire him is not because he has a 
an extensive collection, which he does. But it's that he he very much practices that sense of just buy what you like. And, and there are times, if you follow him, which I'm sure you do, Cameron, if you follow him on social media, most of the time he's posting about something that isn't necessarily super valuable. It is always, though, beautiful. It is always quality. It is always tasteful and interesting, and there's something unique about it. But it isn't always like the most expensive thing. And I wonder sometimes if there's like a reverse Heisenberg principle that gets applied where he's he's almost sort of affecting market market values. <laughs> it's, you see John Berger post a, a certain watch and all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, what's that? And they're looking for it. it it's no doubt that he has a significant amount of influence and he does have some of the best taste in watches, whether you care about vintage Cartier or not. I mean, his collection is incredible. But what I love is he'll post this tiny, small, little vintage Cartier platinum on a bracelet, ultra rare watch. And then he'll he'll post the new bronze Tudor Black Bay. And that's his summer watch. And I love that. And yeah, he is also one of those guys that buys what he likes. And and anybody I've seen that, you know, videos of him talking about all this stuff and people ask him, should I buy this? Should I buy that? And he always says, just buy, buy what you like. Yeah, you, that's and right. You, and you can't go wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say also in terms of clothing, kind of his equivalent is Alessandro Squarzi, an Italian. Absolutely. Yeah, he that guy, I mean, first of all, that gentleman looks great in everything. It doesn't matter if he's wearing a Savio Rose suit. Well, in, on him, he, likely the suit that he wears more is, is more Italian made, but, 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 or he could be wearing some sort of American heritage wear old wool plaid Mackinac and looks great. And so, and I like that he mixes old and new and I like that he has a point of view. And, and I think that's, that's what makes collecting fun is consistent with just collect what you like. Don't worry about what's kind of, you know, what other people are doing, what's, what's high value versus low value. Just collect what I, I think as long as you have a differentiated point of view over time, your collection will take on almost its own persona and, a, and its own direction and its own sort of set of values. So I admire, both, I think, both John um, Goldberger and Alessandro Squarzi for, for having very strong points of view about what works for them, uh, what's high quality, um, uh, uh, and, and, they, and they even break some rules in the process of collecting. So he's another one that I admire. Yeah, I don't know if you you own a copy, but they did a book together, and it's one of my favorite coffee table books that I own. I did not know that the two I will of those. Send you guys? the link to that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, because they're like best friends. Oh my gosh, I I actually didn't even know that. Um, yep, I so. will send you a, a link to that book after this because it's it's a must have. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And then and then you know and then other people I admire, who, who, you know, for for the way that they collect are not necessarily people who are well-known or famous it's it's more that they're they're friends of mine and you just have a sense that wow uh what what they're doing is very consistent it's always to a high quality bar there's a strong point of view and um, in short order uh you you understand who they are and what they stand for and i think that that's what's neat about collecting is that it's it's a way to kind of exude um what you're about absolutely do you enjoy the hunt or the ownership more I think 
if I'm really honest, I think I enjoy the ownership more. I don't know what that says about me. I think it's inherently a little materialistic to collect for sure. And maybe this makes me a little bit even more materialistic is that I, I like holding it in my hand. I like smelling it. I like connecting with it that, oh my God, this watch was worn by that person or this jacket was worn by that person. You know, that that's super interesting. So I think owning it is, if I had to choose, both are really enjoyable, the hunt and ownership. It's a tough question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most importantly, do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? I must have been because um, I think it's always kind of been there. And I don't know what what is it about our neural... Uh, if this is a neural atypical thing that they'll someday, you know, define, but uh, I do think it is kind of almost like a gene or like a bug that that that's intrinsic to who you are, uh, because I know people who don't collect who are kind of the opposite. You know, they really pride themselves, and I, in some ways, envy them. Like they have a, you know, like a capsule wardrobe, and they have they own six or seven outfits, and everything's black, and everything mix and matches, and that's all they're doing. That's all they do. And they own maybe one watch or no watch and they own one car uh, and they're not affected the way that we are. And, and I do think it's sort of fundamental to the person. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think that you are born with it. Amazing. Jonathan, your knowledge and your passion is immense. I truly can't thank you enough for coming on and joining me today. Uh, I, I, I feel like we could have done this for another three hours. Uh, I, we have a lot more to talk about. We will definitely have to do this again. And, and again, truly, thank you for taking the time to join me on Collector's Dream Radio. You're very welcome, Cameron. Keep doing amazing work that you're doing with your podcast and with your other guests. I'm truly honored that you would uh, that you considered including me. You've catalyzed me to think a little bit differently about why I do all of this and, um, and maybe um, some interesting new directions. Amazing. I appreciate it. And I can't wait to chat again soon. Yeah, likewise. Take care. Have a great weekend. All right. That does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening to Collector's Gene Radio.